Hi everyone, we're going to get started. Um, thank you all for coming out this morning um, to the genealogy circle meeting. Um, very happy to have Martha Edgerton here talking to us about preserving family documents and other treasures. I um, wanted to mention to you before we um, begin, um, this half sheet of paper that we have sitting on the table back there is for the November 9th meeting. Um, we're going to have a brick wall session. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with, uh, with the term, brick walls is basically the term that we use to describe um, research problems that we have in family history. Um, certain ancestors who simply won't be found or come out of hiding, uh, no matter what we do. So what we're going to do for this meeting is, um, if you know that you'd like to attend the November 9th meeting, to write down a particular issue or ancestor that maybe is giving you problems that you'd like to explore, and leave this piece of paper with us before um, we wrap up today. And what we're going to do is we're going to organize people in similar groups, people that have similar research problems, and basically talk it out, see if other people can give us some ideas. So um, going to turn it over to my colleague, Eva Slezak. Hi. Um, good morning. Mm -hmm. uh, freshness in the back, feel free during the presentation and before and after. I also wanted to mention, uh, some of you may have come here for the first time for this uh, meeting, so for this organization. So we have a form that you can fill in, and is anyone interested here? Anyone come for the first time to this group? Okay. You, did you get, this is one of the rules. That's the survey. That's important too. Very important. So, and what this just asks for your contact information and also areas that you're researching, so that um, those that have similar areas that they're looking for or similar problems, um, you might have like little subsections. Usually, what we are hoping to do is to have some someone of, uh, speaking about a subject of interest to the group. And if, if you have any suggestions of individuals, did everyone get one? Feel free to contact us and, and let us know. Okay, so since we're all interested in how to preserve our wonderful family papers and so on, um, today our presenter is Martha Edgerton. She's a preservation expert and a book conservator with over 38 years of experience. And I'm sure she has some interesting stories to share with us. She's worked at the Johns Hopkins University as a book conservator and is presently a supervisor of our bindery department here at the library. So we consider ourselves very fortunate that we have someone at hand to consult with as need be. And before further ado, 
Let me present Martha. Welcome to this group. Thank you, Eva, and welcome all of you. Um, I'm going to talk to you about today about preserving your family documents, and in addition to that, I will also talk about artifacts and other collectibles that you might have in your um, presence. Eva has already introduced me, so um, on the next slide, you just see a repeat of what Eva said. In addition to that, um, I might add that as a hobby, I do bookbinding, that's sort of creative, um, the creative side of me, where I make books, blank books, um, gift books, and um, not professionally, not to sell or anything, but just make it as fun, and I like to make book art. That's a whole other subject, but um, so that's me, and um, I'd like to, by a show of hands, know how many of you are collectors of um, books, papers, um, your keepers of your family's records, Okay, so most of you are collecting and storing and whether it's in your head or on paper or uh, electronically, that's good to know. Okay, so this, will, this slide will, um, presentation will help you a lot, I believe, with um, all that you're collecting. I, and mostly um, it's talking about um, paper-based materials, and I'll describe that a little further. So um, we're going to talk about what you're... Uh, treasures are, what your documents are, different types of them, um, what causes them to deteriorate, and what you can do to improve the longevity of your materials and objects. We're going to talk about um, paper-based materials. That just means that anything made of paper, whether it's um, three-dimensional or flat item, we're going to talk about electronic medium and artifacts and collectibles. That would be things like baseball cards, doll babies, um, anything that you collect. Okay, so we'll start with the, um, the 3D items that would include things like books, globes, um, photo albums, and you see, some, you see the magazines and the other items that you might call flat, but they're sort of 3D in that they are um, book format. Um, but primarily these items are made of paper. Your globes are usually made of paper. Nowadays you, we see a lot of plastic globes and things like that. That's not my area, but uh, I'm talking mainly about paper-based uh, products. And then we uh, know that flat items usually consist of things like maps and deeds and um, diplomas birth certificates and all the other legal documents that you may have in your possession as a keeper. And um, some people even keep puzzles or collect puzzles. And I want to let you know that you can disrupt me at any point. If you have questions, you don't have to save them to the end. I'm in the, perform um, in the formal mode right now because I was informed this morning that this is being podcast. Are you all familiar with, with that term? Um, so, okay, um, podcasting means that nowadays when people can't attend a workshop or a seminar in, um, in person, they can uh, listen or sometimes even see the event via computer. So I don't think it's live. Am I correct? We don't know, right? I don't think it's live, but I don't want that to deter you from asking questions. 
So just because the room looks very formal and I have to stay behind the podium because um, in order for this to be recorded correctly, they need to hear me and hear you. So therefore, we have microphones out there. So don't shy away from your questions because of that. Interrupt me at any point, raise your hand, speak out, um, so that I will know that you want me to stop and address something that you uh, would like to know more about. So, um, so these would be your flat objects. Um, these are the types of things that you all are collecting and storing, most of you. Okay. I'm a genealogist. I mean, not a genealogist, but I, I'm interested in genealogy, and I've been collecting my family's uh, history um, since, the, since Roots was um, produced. And um, I started out collecting a lot of things on paper, meaning I would go to the um, archives in D.C. or locally and um, print out things, go to the, um, what's the old-fashioned, reel-to-reel things. I would go to, yeah, microfilm and, um, and then have it printed out, come home. And before I knew it, I ended up with drawers full of papers and certificates and all kinds of things that I just lost control of. And then finally I realized I had to get some order, so I started doing the normal thing that most people do. You start file-foldering things and um, getting them in some type of order. I still have those paper documents at home. I have two tubs full, and I'm trying to encourage my family to come along and help me to organize, keep them organized, and um, to scan and keep them preserved that way. So um, I can relate to what all you all are doing, and I hope to join your group as of today. I, you know, I think I'm, I'm going to try to start coming because that, that next session is something I really need to um, hear about because I'm stuck at a point. But um, I know you probably do, as a collector, you have a variety of these things. I have newspapers. Um, I don't have maps, but, but yeah, I'm going to talk about how you can uh, deal with all these things that you have. And also, nowadays, you will probably have electronic media that includes um, CDs, DVDs, uh, maybe some of the older um, medium, like the diskettes. I don't know if anyone, I still have some that I have to get converted. And um, you may have data or documents on your telephones, um, photos, things like that. So we'll talk a little about that. And then, like I said, you have artifacts and objects quilts, toys, um, butterflies, anything that you might collect is considered an object or an artifact that if you're collecting it as a family uh, treasure, you should seek out ways of preserving them. So what causes deterioration? Any questions so far? Stop me. We, we want to make this very informal, so relax and just jump in there, scream out if you need to get my attention. Um, so we're going to talk about what degrades these objects, and usually it's what it's made of. Like we know um, newspaper, take newspaper for example. It's made of wood pulp and versus long time ago when they made newspapers in the early 1800s, they may have, had, may have made them with a lot more rag content. Therefore, those new papers, newspapers today last a lot longer than the ones that are made today of wood content. Um, that whole rag component makes it not tear as easily and it, it just slows down the degradation of um, the paper because it has that rag content, cotton, linen. But today's news, newspapers, as you know, uh, it can land on your step or your 
sidewalk or your wherever the deliverer person leaves it, and if you don't collect it within a certain amount of days or so, it turns very yellow. That is a part of the degradation, degrading process, um, the breakdown of all the fibers and what makes up the paper, and eventually it will just disintegrate. So um, it's what the object is made of uh, and in combination of a lot of things, other things that makes it break down. Time is one of the factors. Um, as we said, if we put newspaper in the sun and the elements outside for a long time, it starts to break down. The surroundings, the sun, light, humidity, temperature, all of those things, and believe it or not, home pollution. Um, at Hopkins, I preserved a lot of things that dated back well back into the um, 1500s, 1600s, and we would see, even though the items were made of... Um, good rag content, we may see, we may, you may see deterioration on the tops of the books. Um, the tops would be the edges on top, where um, soot, because in those days people used fireplaces and, and things like that, um, oil, um, heat by oil, and a lot of the pollutants just fill the home. You can see old fireplaces with soot all on the wall. Those types of pollutions will fall and rest on top of books and in time cause uh, uh, deterioration. So um, home pollutants is a big factor. Okay, so we're still on, on the topic of what causes deterioration. Um, I talked about how newspaper yellows and within, seems like within hours sometimes. So on your left you can see a brand new newspaper and on your right this is how um, a newspaper that's been outside in the elements or inside in the elements can look within days and what uh, what we've learned is that light damage is cumulative it's um, meaning that the duration of time that the light rests on your artifacts your paper documents it can slowly degrade it that way um, I'm also a volunteer at one of the museums in the, at the Smithsonian in, D, in D.C., and we often ask the patrons to not take photographs of the documents and some of the precious things that we're displaying. And um, a lot of people challenge us and say, you know, why? I'm not hurting it. I'm just taking a picture. And we have to explain to them that the flashlight, the flashes, is cumulative. The amount of times that hundreds of people come through and take those pictures of Lincoln's signed document, it, it fades the ink, it degrades the paper, so light, natural light, artificial light, all of any types of light is damaging. And by cumulative, that just means that it all adds up, and it, in time it will degrade the, um, the object. And all of that is irreversible. The newspaper on your right, the yellow newspaper, there is nothing so far in my field that we can do to... Uh, reverse that damage, but we can do things to stabilize the the um, newspaper. We can deacidify it. That just means do some type of chemical treatment to uh, place the chemical process at rest. Meaning, uh, it will slow down the degradation. It will. Uh, it might slow down the breakage. Um, but for newspapers, not a whole lot can be done as far as reversing the damage. Uh, nothing much. I mean, we can, 
with some items like old rag content papers, we can bleach to change the coloration. If it's been faded due to um, exposure or damage, we can do things like bleaching, which is still not the ideal thing, but just, just like clothes. If you soil your clothes and you want to make it bright and colorful again, you wash it, clean it, and it looks a little brighter. Um, we can do the same thing with paper that has rag content, but newspaper of this period is not one of those things. Maybe newspapers of the early 1800s and back, we could uh, treat it that way. So what else causes uh, degradation or deterioration is temperature and humidity, the combination of the temperature and humidity. Uh, what happens um, in your home is it tends to fluctuate. We turn our furnaces on, turn them off, we turn the air conditioning on. But in places like libraries and, and museums, they try to keep a constant try to keep a constant humidity and temperature of a, an ideal setting for different types of collections or for specific types of collections to keep, uh, to keep it at a steady uh, setting so that we're not speeding up the process of degrading. Um, so when we have to do that at home, we, we try to find a happy medium between us and the objects that we collect and preserve. Um, the happy medium is usually low humidity and a good comfortable temperature. Well, that's ideal for our records because unless you are really uh, you're trying to be a museum keeper, then you need to maybe place those artifacts elsewhere and not uh, freeze yourself out or make yourself miserable, miserable for your artifacts. But, I mean, that's a personal choice. But even I at home, I have a large collection of books, and as, as I said, my documents... I try to do my best to preserve them, but I'm not suffering for the item, items that are in my home. The more precious items, I'll tell you what I do with those in a little bit. But um, So yeah, what you see is on your left a moldy book, and we know that with the right combination of temperature, humidity, and moisture, you can grow mold on anything, and books included. And also, um, we have to be concerned with pests, Little mice, little mouse in the corner there. Um, that's an example of how pests can destroy paper by gnawing, eating, or whatever they do to to um, feed on. Or in the case of a mouse, um, they sometimes shred paper for nesting. So, um, so also those are causes of deterioration. So, what can you do to um, preserve your items. And um, the next few slides, you, you're going to hear repeats of information, and that's so that you can, it can just sort of stick in your head. Um, this is the way I, I present so that you'll remember. And if I'm going too fast, you want to take notes, let me know. Um, if you'd like a copy of my slides later, let me know. I don't have copies right now, but what I did do um, was place several main slides on the back table for you to pick up, because those I hope that each of you can um, access the Internet. Those sources of information will um, just give you the same information that I'm giving you. So if you can't keep up, don't worry, because I'll go over those and let you know how you can, again, visit, revisit the information that I am talking about today. So um, proper handling is one of the main things that we need to do to preserve our family documents. 
whenever you handle them with your naked hands, you, you sh uh, impart onto them or spread onto the documents your natural body oils that secrete from your skin as well as lotions and things like that. So all of that adds up on the edges of the item or wherever you touch it and in time it causes it to degrade. So proper handling um, is one of the things we need to start practicing right away. And if you're doing all of that right, the right way already, then you are preservationists yourself. Choosing the most ideal place for storage, those places are um, easier to name as places not to store than where to store. We know that we shouldn't put paper goods, any of your precious items, you shouldn't put in your damp um, basements where pipes, where, where there's risk of um, pipe leakage or any other water or liquid leakages, um, any thing that could happen in a basement that might hurt your normal things as well as your um, treasures, you, that may not be the ideal place for your objects. Um, and pests like to live in basements, damp um, basements. I won't say cold or hot, but they just like damp. Some pests like dampness, and um, so that would make that not an ideal place. And then the opposite of that is the attic where you have the dry, extreme heat that is not good for your, your objects as well because the two different environments are the things that can help to degrade your, your um, documents, and that's a whole nother topic. But, um, but yeah, so you, you, the best place to, I mean, some people have basements that are very stable. I mean, it can be nice and cool, and which is good, and no or low humidity, still good. So the thing is, if you do have that environment in your basement, away from the potential um, mishaps like break, uh, broken pipes, things like that, so if you can find an area in your basement where it's um, sound that way, then I won't say don't do it because I store things in my basement because my basement is only maybe 20 years old. And so far, no problems. But I'm going to go over, when you choose those places, I'm going to talk to you about what you should be doing. So um, I know if you're collectors already, you're already doing the organization thing. You, you've taken an inventory, whether that means you have two birth certificates and you have them placed in order someplace. That's organization. Um, in my case, I have a hodgepodge of a lot of things. I have the birth certificates. Oops, wrong button. I even keep um, obituary programs um, when I go to funerals. My family thinks that I'm really weird because I take that time to do my genealogy research. I interview people and, and um, ask questions that I need to know. And I also collect the programs because I want that a lot of history is in those programs a lot of times, right or wrong. Um, I still collect them. So I go to the records office, I collect um, birth certificates, marriage certificates, all those things, and I collect 3D objects, anything that people pass along or pass out um, that belong to a family member and they want to keep it, other than big furniture, um, smallish things I keep. So um, my way of organizing those things is, like I said, I have those large tubs. They are plastic tubs. They're not cardboard because I want to be able to move those tubs around and not 
cause any damage to the um, documents inside. So I have inside of those tubs the drop file folders. You've seen those. And I have one of them with alphabetical um, dividers letting me know what's in each one of them alphabetically. So that if I, because I'm the family um, informal, informal, um, informally named genealogist, if a cousin calls and says, what did cousin so-and-so do this or do that, and when did they die, then I can go and go to my little file and find my thing and, and give it to them. So, so far, I still have my paper files, and I'm trying to get them scanned, but that's going to be a big task. So, yeah, so for insurance purposes, like I said, if you collect objects like um, doll babies, baseballs, or whatever, and they're valuable to you, signed by someone or whatever, you may want to put them on your insurance policy, um, talk to your insurance people for investment purposes. Um, some things are irreplaceable, but a, some kind of compensation might be better than nothing, a consolation to you or maybe it'll repay the money you spent trying to, when you went around and collected all that information, it gets very expensive driving around. For me, it was very expensive before I joined Ancestry.com, um, driving to D.C. and North Carolina to uh, go to the file, to the archives. And so I'm sure I've spent a lot of money going back and forth to those places. Also, my membership to Ancestry.com is expensive. So I insurance having those items on my insurance would maybe not replace the original item, but I mean it won't. But but at least I'll get some compensation and some maybe some satisfaction. And um, periodically, you want to do condition assessments. Say that um, you do have a storage place and you don't go to those places often. You at least should check periodically just to see what's going on. Make sure that. The environment hasn't changed. Um, no little pests are lurking around, chewing away at your, at the, the textiles or whatever you have, the, the quilts. Um, so those condition assessments you should conduct periodically may mean like for paper products, maybe like once every six months or so, quilts and things like that, um, same kind of thing. So you, that's sort of a common sense kind of thing. You be the judge of that depending on, on the environment in your home. So what else you can do? Um, it's counterproductive to do anything that I'm going to talk about preservation-wise if you cannot find the proper environment. There's no need to spend all that, that all, a lot of money obtaining the things I'm going to talk about in a little while on that table, like the storage containers and all that, if you don't have a place to store them where they are safe from disasters and the fluctuation, extreme fluctuations of temperature, <coughs> humidity, those things that can degrade them. So the first thing, you know, and most important action is to stabilize your environment the best way you can. Like I said, just find a ha happy medium between you and um, the documents. Don't make yourself miserable. Um, and then, um, let's see. On the handouts I gave you, you'll see that I list um, 70 degrees Fahrenheit between, uh, for temperature and 30 to 50 for um, relative humidity. That's sort of a, a comfortable level for, art, for the artifacts, documents, and yourself. But like I said, if you're really concerned with how to properly preserve those items, you will consult with um, the handouts I gave you. And for each type of object, 
you'll learn that, that that temperature and humidity may vary a little bit. So ongoingly, you should monitor and control the temperature and humidity. Like I said, don't just assume that um, you know, things are okay. And um, do your assessment. Make sure that pests and um, other things aren't going on that helps to destroy your objects. And good housekeeping, at least once a year, is one good thing. Like I said, I collect a lot of books. I have gone to a lot of programs here at Pratt and other places where I, I get um, my books autographed. So I have a large autograph collection of books that um, I do keep an eye on. Um, so once a year, one needs to, like here in the library, we have people who, who clean the collections, I mean clean the, the um, library. You, if you have a collection of library books, I would say at least once a year, take the books off the shelf, check them out, you know, check the, the tops and behind them, see what's going on, and just give them a little dusting. Because dust, believe it or not, is another uh, factor of, of deterioration. So, and even then you're, um, I mean, we know. We know that if you store quilts and you have them uh, maybe stacked in a cabinet or something, just because they're in a cabinet doesn't mean that some type of pollutants aren't getting in there. So take them out once a year, not, not shake them hard. I mean, the precious quilts, you wouldn't just flop them around, but just open them, make sure that they're okay. And, and I, because I don't collect quilts, I don't really know how to, I don't know if you dry clean them or whatever, but just check them and make sure that if they need to be cleaned, um, consult with an expert. Your light levels, again, um, where I keep my records and my books, in that room we have windows, but I try to keep the curtains drawn, the blinds closed, and the curtains drawn as much as possible. And there are those days when I just want to be in that room doing something else, and I don't want darkness. I will open them a little bit, but, but overall I try to keep it nice and cool and, and not dark so that some, you know, something else can happen, but just drawn a little bit so that the sunlight is not fading my, the spines of my books or those um, papers and things that I have. And I found that a, having a safe deposit box, as most of you probably know, is one of the, the ideal places for the layperson, for the non-museum people to store their things because um, they have, usually have the right environment, they're secured, um, and um, you can go periodically and check on them. So I take my most precious documents, the originals, I take to the safe deposit box, make copies of, of anything that I, that I may need because some cousin's going to call me and ask me about it. Keep that at home. Make copies of that or keep it, you know, I'll scan it and put it on a disk, but keep the original in the safe deposit box. So if you're paying for it, you may as well get the most out of it by putting your original items there. And a lot of these um, new storage facilities have environmentally controlled, um, what do you call them, lockers or whatever. So, you know, if you have things like objects, uh, quilts and the larger things, um, artifacts, that could be an ideal place. But just make sure that you are using one with environmentally controlled um, conditions. Any questions so far? I hope the microphones aren't scaring you off. <laughs> okay, so um, so again, I'm still same topic. What can we do? Um, storage concerns. I've brought. Um, we're gonna. I'm gonna move over there once I go through these slides. I brought along some examples of different types of archival containers you can purchase, um, and 
as your hand on your handout, you will see where you can obtain these um, types of things. So, um, so that's one of the things you need to do. If you have documents, again, you need to store them in archival containers, meaning the container itself should not be something that will harm your paper. You wouldn't want to take an old, uh, just average, you know, the brown, cor uh, brown corrugated boxes that we get things mailed to us. Those are not ideal for storing uh, papers because they themselves are usually filled with ingredients that can degrade your document, acid, and so on. And um, so you should not um, store your paper or any other type of artifacts in those um, types of boxes. You, um, the best ones are the ones that I'm going to show you from the table over there. If you um, are using, say that you have a very important diploma or something you would like to um, store on the wall instead of in, inside of a box or something, then you should use a frame that has UV filtered glass and the glass should be shatterproof. And a lot of this sounds extreme and costly, and it is. I'm not going to tell you that it's not. It, it is costly, but um, if you really want to preserve those items you hang on the wall, um, they should be, be like, you know, behind shatterproof glass and UV filter. And again, place out uh, away from light and water exposure. And, and with books and docu paper flat documents, quilts, and things like that, you should eliminate ex extraneous dam and damaging items and materials like pressed flowers. You know, we like to, someone sends you flowers, you may want to take a little bud or something, press it between a book. Um, make sure that book you press the flower between is not something you really treasure because it will stain and discolor the page. Um, in my book art, hobby, I do things purposely like that because I'm making art, so I'll choose a book. If I'm going to use a book as a work of art, I may take a flower and press the daylights out of it so that I can get the juices out and get that imprint of the flower, but that's a whole other thing. So, so yeah, so if you um, things like paper clips and bookmarks, I gave you some bookmarks, but that's for information purposes. Um, paper clips and sometimes stick pens I've found, um, all kinds of extraneous stuff that people put inside of books. We have to, unfortunately, remove those if we find them in the books that we preserve in the library. But what we do is put them inside of another uh, archival pocket, and that item will travel with the book or be housed in a box with that book. So if you, I know it's tradition in some, um, some of the funerals I've gone to, we like to take at least a flower from an, an arrangement. When we get to the graveyard, we take a flower. And when I go home with that flower, I m might press it, put it in an envelope, and state what funeral it was attached to, rather than putting it with my program that I want to use for informational purposes. So all of those things are nice, and we've done them for ages, but they are damaging to your, your, your documents. And... Um, so again, monitor, check regularly for mold and insects and other little things that might happen. Um, okay, so for display concerns, again, um, use archival quality materials. When we um, say that you have, um, I'm trying to think of something private that you may want to do. If you have a collection of things and you 
wished for some local library or um, museum to display your items or use your items as a part of an exhibit, you want to make sure that they or you use quality, um, archival quality materials to house them or, or to show them off. Like, again, we, for instance, our special collections department was recently um, consulted for a loan. The, they, another, um, an artist borrowed several um, artwork pieces from us that were paper made. And in order for them to display it at another museum, they wanted us to house them. So um, long story short is those items were placed in, um, in a frame, sort of like that one with a mat. If you use a mat, you want to make sure that the mat is acid-free. I'm pointing to the raven bird on the, that middle column over there. Um, so the, the mat should be acid-free, and again, the frame, the glass should be shatterproof. And um, the wood is usually, if, if all of that is archival, then usually the wood or the fake wood is um, archival for that object. So um, I'm very particular about my stuff. So if someone wants to borrow something, I, I'm, I, act, I go into the mode of being a librarian or a museum <laughs> curator. How are you going to display my object? What are you going to do with it? Um, I don't want this to happen. I don't want that to happen. So you have to be very particular about what you do. I, I don't lend out my family documents. If someone wants, to, wants the information as is, I will scan it and send it electronically to them or um, copy it somehow. But again, remember light exposure. So if it's an original, the more you scan, the more you copy, the more you're degrading the signatures or whatever's on it. So I'm very stingy with my, with my stuff. And um, so for books, oh, books and flat documents, correct shelving sizes are good. If you, you are storing things on shelves like in here, you want to make sure that the, the size of the shelf is appropriate for the items that you're storing. If you're storing a box uh, or a folder full of quilts or um, paper documents, you wouldn't want that document flopping over unsupported off the shelf, meaning um, you wouldn't want a portion of it flat on the, the uh, shelf and then have the other flopping over because that bending and flexing also causes deterioration. So correct shelving is important. Consider location and duration. Again, um, if, you're if you're storing your, one of your original documents on a wall uh, in a frame that's archival, uh, archivally sound, duration is, even though it's archivally sound, it still means that something is being degraded. I mean, it's protected to a point, but say that you have it on your wall for, you know, for years and years, you, if you could take a picture before and after, you still would see some type of degradation. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Question. You might get to it, but in case you don't. Okay. In archiving, say, like, um, dresses from the 1920s, that kind of, you know, materials, those things, do you have any suggestions? Textiles, yeah. Yeah, that would fall under textiles, and it's sort of like paper. I might mention in my profession, they have, um, we have dis people in di various disciplines of preservation. We have textile conservators, book conservators, paper conservators, and on and on, um, sculpture conservators, painting. That area is not my area, but 
um, the leaflet that I gave you for handout. I forget the title. I'll get to that slide and I'll point it out to you. So yes, there are particular ways that you would um, preserve those as well. Did I answer your question? Okay, yeah, okay, but if not, nudge me. Okay. So, yeah, duration is, is always a factor in um, how long something is exposed to, as you heard early, to the, ele the harmful elements. And, again, monitoring and cleaning regularly is a, is a must. Okay, so here's some examples of storage and display containers. Uh, in your upper left-hand corner, you see... Um, certificates and the um, below it the archival boxes like on the table over there far side of the room see the one with the little baby doll um, I don't have a pointer but in the lower left hand corner corner they those companies sell boxes that can be custom made or some of them are pretty standard say that you collect uh, uh, rocks things like that that little box with the sections you can buy um, from them to store your, your particular type things. And then newspaper size boxes in the middle, lower bottom, um, they're sized just for newspapers. So they will house your newspapers nice and snug um, for you to, and make it so that you can store them uh, neatly in a place. Those boxes are not airtight and not um, giving you 100% protection from shock or uh, the elements, but but at least they, they give you quite a bit of protection overall. Yes? Excuse me, I have a question on that. Um, the, um, the, the information that you gave us on the sheets of where you can purchase these items, do you have to purchase a lot? Because when I've gone on there before, it seems as if it was for people who are in the business and not for people who just want a small amount of some sort of container. Yes, it it does seem that way, and um, they do, most of their clients are people like us, libraries and people who are in private practice buying more than like two or three. I would say if if you yourself um, get the no, get a no answer from, the, if you see something you're really interested in, if you can get back in touch with me, I can then talk to them about this talk and tell them to make an exception. Um, they are very... Uh, they will accommodate to a point, uh, especially if you see on your list Gaylord and Demco. They, um, they know that they want to satisfy their customers. So knowing that we give programs like this, I think they would bend to if you want a couple of boxes. Or maybe as a group, say that you all um, see that you want to purchase some of these things. Maybe as a group, you can get together and make a group order and I think they will accommodate that as well. But I order privately for my own things individually. But see, that's probably because it's me. But but I can maybe have a talk with them and say through Eva or someone one of the contacts here and say that you are you all are a group and can they start uh, serving you as individuals you know in within the group? So maybe that's something we should follow through on. Yes. Those those boxes look like they're. More sturdily constructed than the typical box, but what else about them is different from a box that makes them archivally? Yes, yes. Um, the one, all of all of them that you see, all of the boxes, and and I'll let you go over and handle those. They are a little more sturdy, but the main thing is they are um, they're made up of archival. The ingredients are archival. The um, 
they still may be made of recycled paper, but they're, let me just go over and get one and I can talk better. Chemically, they have been processed in a way um, like the cor- brown corrugated boxes that we can just buy and you know pick up on the street um, from ex- uh, disposed by stores and all. Those are made of inferior products. Um, when we recycle paper at home, it, the collectors pick up our recyclables and they take them through a process of um, to, for paper making again. Those uh, processes do not include things um, like deacidification, which takes removes a bit of the acid out of the paper. Um, they do it at at low cost, so they're just remaking um, paper to make corrugated boxes. That's a whole another process, different than this one, in that the, pro- the this box is made of layers. Um, this outer gray layer is uh, a, a paper made process that includes chemicals that removes the impurities that causes the paper to degrade. So that's one thing. The ingredients are made um, archivally sound to not cause your document to um, deteriorate. If anything, the box will probably still outlast your documents in, in, in 50 years or so. And these are made to be a lot more sturdy because they have these metal reinforcements. The way it's been constructed, it's, it's uh, made to take a bit of shock. So if I drop this, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't uh, you wouldn't see much damage on the corners. So again, like I said, while it's not airtight, uh, it still protects the documents a bit from shock. And because it's chemically made to last a long time, it offers a lot more than your average um, cardboard box. Did that answer your question? Okay. Yes. When you mentioned the plastic tubs, they come in all different sizes. So could the smaller tubs, plastic, you know, be uh, another way of doing it? Or are you saying no, that would be um, Plastics are good. Um, again, some plastics will off-gas chemicals that are harmful. So you really, for me, I, I try to stick with companies that I know have made them of archival products, products that are made for storing forever, meaning however long that is, documents. Um, um, there are a list of, of products nowadays that, that are inert, meaning they don't have the impurities that break down your documents. Um, even the, if you see a house in process, a building of a house in process, process that white covering called Tyvek, you, have you all ever seen that? It's T-Y-V-E-K, I think. That's a product that we use in our field, and I think astronauts and all use it, because it's, it's made of um, materials that won't affect another material. Um, and that's when you get into archival quality. It's when you, the material, material won't affect another negatively, like the cardboard boxes. Um, the average cardboard box, if you store your papers in it, it will start to degrade your paper, turn it brown just like it's brown. So um, these aren't like those cardboard boxes. So plastic containers, um, I would make sure that they are um, sound, that they don't give off any type of harmful gases. And you can do that by asking, um, checking it out, the manufacturer, and see how what they have to say about it. If you deal with any of the companies on the paper, the handout, um, they will list what the paper, what object is made of, the plastic objects, because they do sell plastic objects as well. Yes? Mentioned with respect to ordering from these big companies, um, they may discourage small orders. 
but there are other companies that won't do that. The smaller companies, uh, one of them that I deal with sometimes is archival methods in Rochester, New York, mm-hmm. uh, run by a former employee of Light Impressions. Yes. It used to be very good, but now it's completely unreliable. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, they've been taken over and, and kind of run into the ground. But archival mm-hmm. methods is very good, and uh, you can buy small orders, small items. Uh, of course, if you buy more, uh, three or more of certain thing, packages or something like that, you get a discount for price. That's the way it works. But archival methods will even uh, cut down uh, things for you uh, at no charge. Who, who was inquiring? Platforms and things like that. Thank you for that information. Did, did someone asked earlier. Oh, um, so did you hear? You, yeah, yeah. You said Rochester. Rochester, New York. It's archival methods. You can look them up on the Internet. And it's a small company. And they, they know what they're doing because the, the owner used to work for a, what used to be a very good company. which since moved and uh, is not so good anymore. Yeah, unfortunately, we used to deal a lot with Light Impressions, uh, and they were just like Demco and the rest. And, th- yeah, the ones, the names that I gave you, I'm sorry I missed that one, but I'm glad you were here to say that because um, the ones I gave you are the big dealers. And, and like I said, I think they, they would um, honor your order, your small orders, but we need to work on them. Yes, sir? That list you're talking about is mm-hmm. back here. Oh, so on the table back there? Yes, the three handouts, eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. Yeah, I'm going to pull it up on the slide in a minute. Okay. You know when you go to um, like an artist store, things like that, wouldn't they have some of these uh, possible? Yes, yes, and I didn't mean to leave them out. Utrecht, um, and they're all sort of right in the same location. Uh, Plaza. On, across from the Waxter Center on, what is that, still Maryland Avenue. Um, there's Utrecht near Howard Street across from the Rite Aid. Oh, and the University, um, MICA, the Maryland Institute stores, they also sell these things. Um, I found that, well, that's where I, go, where I go a lot of times to get, but not my boxes and things like that, but I go to get papers for my book art because just because I'm making art, I still want my materials to be archival so I use the right glues and and um, papers and things like that because I want these objects to last forever as long as possible um so yeah those places uh if they don't have what you want ask them to get it for you maybe they can even get these boxes cheaper I don't know but um but for folders and boxes and things like that I've I've never inquired through them about that but but for papers and glues and things like that I do so I'm glad you guys are. Yes. May I assume that plastic containers from Targets and Staples are not good? I wouldn't assume. Um, if you have a question, uh, look at if you can find any manufacturing information on the box itself before you purchase it. Look under the bottom on the size and just call them and say, you know, are these archi- I'm concerned about, you know, the longevity or the safeness of these objects. Yeah, I wouldn't assume that they're not because one thing you can do, I mean, there are different things you can do. Um, I guess into a long, long other talk, but um, I guess the safest thing to do is to just try to check and make sure that they are safe. Yeah. So let's see, where are we? 
um, oh, so for, um, you know how we, let me walk across the room again. Okay, when we're working with um, preserving our photographs, uh, these look familiar to you? Okay, we all know by now that these are no-no, right? Yeah, this, um, we learned this some a couple decades ago, that not only um, is this self-destructive, but it does uh, affect our photographs or whatever we keep in between them. So at this point, you should have started removing your photographs from these sleeves and replacing them with things like this. And these also you can find in Michaels and Crafts and, um, and the vendors that I listed on the handout. So, and even in Michaels and Crafts, you may be able to find some of those, um, some uh, safe plastic containers. And, though, and at Michaels and Crafts and places like that, you can really talk to the salespeople and ask them whether or not they are archival. So, yes, for, um, for your photographs, I, the upper right-hand corner is uh, basically one of these things. And we should no longer... I mean, no longer should you glue your photographs to um, paper albums. We can still buy paper page albums, but the paper should be acid-free, and you should be using those little corners, see in the upper left, left-hand corner? Those should be archival as well. Use, you, you can still use your corners, but make sure that they are acid-free and safe for long-term storage. And in the middle, the white envelopes at the bottom... Um, those are Tyvek, like I mentioned earlier, the Tyvek material. I think I have one over there, I'm not sure, but um, that's another product that's good for storing your photographs. You can get the large archival things from Sam's in the library at the time. Great, okay. Did, were, did you all hear that? And you can go to Sam's if you use the, um, this size of the plastic sheets you can buy them at Sam you can buy them at okay so um, for your um, again storage and um, display for written printed and photographic materials um, by now um, we know that you can store them on the little flash drives um, scan and store uh, that's what we're removing nowadays to the mainstream storage methods um, include the electronic methods so um like I said, the more you scan, the more the same item, the more you're exposing it to light. But, but one-time scanning is great because then you can, the product of what you get, you can make CDs and copies for other family members and share your information that way. And backup is, is the, um, the ultimate uh, key here. You should backup the items that you save on CDs and, and your flash drives and share them with family members because it's, it's if you are the keeper of everything and you have a disaster, there goes everything. So what I try to do is anything I scan or copy, I try to share with other family members. Um, I'm trying to get a couple people to commit like I am so that they too can store all that I have so that if I have a fire or something like that, that um, it won't be totally lost. Uh, so, and then you know that if you make CDs... And in time, like we make, um, we made those little floppy disks a long time ago. We used to copy things, documents, and then they went out of style or use or style or whatever, and we had to um, move on to the next form of electronic medium. If you don't keep up, 
you may not have, be able to get those converted. So once you go electronic, you're going to have to keep on converting to whatever the next new invention is. So it's money, 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 it's, but it's worth it. And I wouldn't get into copying a lot of things um, or spending a lot of money on keeping things that are already kept by the government, like, like I do, certificates and things like that. Um, you don't need to spend money on keeping those things when you can go back to the archives and get it. Just spend your time, your valuable time, more on things that are one of a kind that's not kept elsewhere like with the government and libraries and things like that. Yes. No, no, please. Absolutely. Who knows if anything that we're saving today is going to make any sense at all in 50 years, 100 years? Absolutely. And so there, I go back to preserving the original. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because, it, you know, it, you go through all this because I think scanning less, room less, this, mm-hmm. that. Right. I know it's fearful that it won't even be able to be seen. Very fearful. Um, I've learned in my years of, of in this profession that um, I would thought having the little old uh, cassettes that we could record voices on where one of my aunts um, used to sing and I had her voice recorded on one of those little, tiny little cassettes so I, I had, my plan was to have it converted and time went by I didn't and when I went back to play it the emotion and all of that had broken and, and it just pretty much gone so uh, I learned in a seminar once that you should exercise anything on tape with the little reels, you should do what's called exercising those tapes at least once a year. You know how we bought the VHSs and things like that, and now we got them stored, and we're like, I'm going to watch that movie again sometime. You, if you don't watch it, you need to just put it in the player, run it all the way forward, all the way back, at least once a year, because if you just leave it for years and years, it breaks down and starts to melt. All of the ingredients start to deteriorate and stick to each other. So there goes that. Um, so, yeah, so if you made some family um, footage, you should have it either converted or exercise it. You should have it converted because if anything, VHS is pretty much on its, well, if it's not all, all the way out, it's going quickly. So, yeah. Um, and what I do sometimes, too, I, I try to make PowerPoint presentations out of my family records. It came in handy for, um, we celebrated a cousin's 80th birthday. And I had scanned a bunch of pictures, and all I did was cut and paste a bunch of those pictures and made a little story out of it for her party. And the family members were like, they were just so happy. They were like, can I have a copy? Can I have a copy? I didn't have that picture. I didn't know that, you know, so those kind of things. Um, I put documents on it. I found her great-great-grandfather, I think it was, um, an 1850 uh, census record copy. I put that on. That just amazed her because, one, she couldn't understand all the electronic stuff, but she was so shocked that I found that type of information and to see her family member on that census um, record just made her feel so great. So, so yeah, make like this, make a PowerPoint presentation, even if it's just for your keeping, you know, it's still the information is kept elect- electronically. Um, let's see, we're getting close to the end here. Um, uh, again, Proper handling is, is very important. When you're handling your documents, try to act like a librarian. Don't go have your lunch or have your breakfast or whatever and come back with, with food residue on your hands and pick up that birth certificate or whatever and, um, and think that nothing's happening. You, know, you get grease, um, 
all that, you know, you may not feel it or see it on your hands, but yes, it's being passed on to the paper. And I wanted to show extremes like the pizza on the, but I mean, that's what I saw in, at, at Hopkins. The students would take our books and check them out. And next thing you know, they're eating the burger and it's over the book and ketchup and everything else is like, boom, on the book. So, um, I've seen it all, and I've seen books like the one in the lower right-hand corner where um, insects have just pretty much eaten away the, the text or the manuscript. So um, keeping food away from your collection is very important. And clean hands. Again, act like a librarian. I, when I go to handle my things, I wash my hands, um, and I put the extreme of using gloves because... Um, here in our special collections department, for certain things, we use cotton gloves or um, vinyl gloves to further protect because these items are hundreds of years old. And um, again, we want to just not add to the, the deterioration of the object. And um, sometimes for um, handling your 3D objects, like you may have, you may collect ceramics or whatever, having on uh, rubber gloves can help from um, the accidental dropage. So, yeah, things like that. So just kind of common sense kind of things. And that's all we do in preservation is sort of common sense kind of things. Um, this is uh, a slide I, I show to in my, in, when I show to people who are uh, professionals in, the pre in preservation. Um, the proper way to shelve books that are substantial in size, uh, like that I'll show you over there on, on the table, most people uh, in libraries, we need to see the, the information on the spine. So um, we think that with the spine up, you know, it's helping us to see the information, but in the long term, it's not helping the book because what happens is um, you see the detachment of the text block. What happens is the weight of that heavy paper just pulls the book out of the text block and causes the breakdown of the binding. So the proper way, if you have a book collection at home, is to put that spine down so that that gravity won't detach the text block. Yes? Quick question. Is it better to do them in that direction than laying the book flat? Flat is always better. <laughs> it's always better. But we know with, with space uh, concerns... Especially in libraries, we, we, don't, we can't store everything flat. So at home, I mean, even I don't have space anymore to store things flat. Well, yeah. But if I have, like, a stack of them flat, is that still better than this? It's better if you can keep same size things. If you try to pyramid them with um, just small increments of differences, then that's good. Oversized, if they're all oversized. Yes, on the bottom, large, smaller, smaller, smaller then that's good. But keep an eye on them because, again, if that light is hitting them, you may see fading where that book has read. You know, you need to move things around, not only for pest reasons, but for fading. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And then in handling your books, um, the, on the left-hand side, it shows that most of us, uh, and I have to catch myself sometimes, when you want a book off the shelf, you go and you pull it by the head. That's the head part of the book. That's a no-no because what that does is causes ripping um, of the spine area. Yes. <laughs> She's raising her hand for you, for you guys. Um, when the cover is coming off the book, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how Yes. Yeah, um, we're not allowed here 
in our bindery to serve the public. We're only here to preserve the library's collection, but I do know people in the area who do that type of work, and one person recently retired from here just maybe a couple of months ago. I can give you her information, and she can do one book, hundreds of books, whatever. Okay. So, yes, we, you should push the adjacent books. Say that you want that particular book on the right-hand side. Push the two adjacent books in a little bit and then grab the book, by its, the book you want, by its spine to pull it off the shelf. And that will cut down on the damage. Shouldn't cause any damage if you do that properly. So um, what I'd like to encourage you to do is never do your own home repairs on your documents or books. Don't apply tape. Um, even if you buy something called document tape, that's sold by even the vendors that I have listed. Document tape is made of a synth- has a synthetic residue on it that um, in time it itself melts into the paper and it causes problems when it comes to reversing it. So on your very, very important, valuable materials, I would not put that document tape. Um, we've seen duct tape on patients can return books. They, they think they're helping us by re- repairing a broken spine by attaching duct tape and all kinds of things. No, 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 no. That's a no-no. So um, they're not helping us, and I encourage you to not try to help us that way. We would love for you to come in and volunteer in the bindery and help us if you wish and get some <laughs> proper training. But, and by the way, if anyone is interested in volunteering um, in the bindery, you can let, um, let me know. Or um, we have a volunteer coordinator's office where you can call in and volunteer. There was another question. Yes. Good. I see what you say. Don't do it yourself. Sometimes. Uh, so a lot of the things you collect have tape on them, or they're taped to a mat in, in a frame, and the mat's acidic. Yes. And uh, or they're they finish in a an album or something. Uh, is there is there a good way that you know how to get the tape off and the residue of the tape? Sometimes hot water will will get some things yeah. off that that uh, that aren't color. Uh, you don't put watercolors in hot water or anything right. like that. But, or photographs maybe, but other things, uh, you can soak the, the tape off using some hot water. But sometimes masking tape, more recent masking tape, has this terrible residue. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything you can use from that? It used to be a product that they don't make anymore. Uh, I think it was the same as uh, lighter fluid. Uh, yeah, it smells like it. Yeah. But I don't think you can get it. Uh, what, what's your thought on that? Well, as a professional conservator I'm not supposed to tell you how to do anything like that without proper training I mean if I conducted a workshop to show you how to do it um, then I could say go off and do it but I I shouldn't tell you how to do that because um, it's very conservators are very expensive to hire but but they've been trained um, they've received many years of training and they've done many many items to perfect that training so that they don't um, try to remove tape and, and end up taking your words off your page or do any other type of damage. So um, unless you take a, cla- a formal class on how to do those particular things, that would be the only thing I can recommend. I don't want to tell you to use something and then it, it causes some, some type of damage. So I'm sorry, but, but yeah, um, unfortunately we do charge a lot in this field and it's like any other profession. It, you're paying for years of expertise and, and assurance. So, 
Yeah. Yeah, there are classes. Um, sometimes um, they're, they're hard to find. Um, I conduct private classes, but not on a regular basis. It's kind of ad hoc, you know, depending on who invites me or things like that. Um, the classes that you, you can, you can cons- if you have a lot of things you want to do, you can consult with, um, I can give you a list of conservators who can do one-on-one workshops. Um, and there's a guild of book workers who, um, where people conduct workshops. The, the guild seminar is coming up this fall, but it's usually attended by professionals, but it's not to say that average people can't, you know, non-professionals in the field can't attend. So the options are out there, but um, there, you know, I can give you resources that you can use to find out where these um, lessons are given, but they're just not known every day easily. Yes. Well, you discussed opportunities for volunteering here at the library, which I would think would also give you That's one volunteer way. a little bit of time to maybe pick somebody's brain mm-hmm. a little more educated than right. And it does. Um, we don't have a full-fledged conservation lab here, meaning we can't do high-end um, conservation like washing paper, deacidifying, and things like that. But we do do tape removal. So if you want to learn that way, you can volunteer, and we have a lot of tape for you to remove <laughs> if you want to go that route. I mean, it's, it's an option, and some of the people have come to volunteer with their own personal goals. Um, we have an intern who graduated from Towson last semester and her goal was to get a certain amount of hours preservation hours because her future is um to become she's not sure yet either a conservator preservationist or librarian so she's still with us she came last november and i've been trying to give her as much as i can so yep that's one i didn't think about that but yeah that's one sneaky way of doing it yeah (laughs) so yeah um let's see did you have a question? Uh, yeah. Are there any colleges that offer courses on things like book flag? There are, yes. There, um, if you all could, those who are interested can leave me your names. I can send you a list of places. There's a school in North Carolina, I forget the name of it, um, where average people can go to learn bookbinding. Pennsylvania, there's a school, um, and then if you want to go way out, I mean, out west, there's schools, and, and I think in Boston also. So, yeah. I, I, I recall as a kid that, that uh, uh, you very frequently see <clears throat> mail-order educational places offering book binding as one of the oh, wow. you could take. Oh, wow. Oh, I never I saw that. that yeah, because we're sort of a dying breed. I hate to say it. <laughs> we're, um, yeah, we're... They're still educating them, but in a different way. And and nowadays, um, book binding is more like a hobby kind of thing. Book preservation, Buffalo State has a program where college kids are um, educated and become preservationists or conservators. But um, book binding is still sort of one of those things that you have to find the people or the schools who offer it. So I can give you a few schools. um, But the individuals, I can give you a list of people who can maybe give you a one-on-one course or two. Yep. Yes. I don't think it'd be a downer, but this morning I couldn't believe it. I was watching, and there's now a new library, the first of its kind in the United States and Texas, where it's all digital books. <laughs> I'm not surprised. It's coming. It's coming. Sounds very familiar. 
<laughs> it's coming. <laughs> yeah, that's the new way. Yep. Yeah, so I'm glad I entered the field when I did, and I really love my work. <laughs> so um, for disasters, I know, and sometimes um, we incur those. I mean, they happen. They just happen, incidentals. Um, little disasters, big disasters. I gave you a handout. This particular handout I gave you. I mean, not this one, the one with the um, the uh, website addresses. But um, just educate yourself. If you do have very valuable things, educate yourself on the basics of how to handle any small disasters. Eva and I were talking the other day. No, was that you and Yeah, you and I were talking about um, if smelly mildew smells that sometimes um, surround your books or your textiles and things like that. And I think Eva was talking about baking soda and kitty litter. And in our field, that's what we use kitty litter litter a lot to um, remove that smell from mildew and musty smells from paper and books. We create at home. I just have a makeshift uh, chamber, I call it. It's just a large trash can with a lid. I suspend, I put the kitty litter in the bottom of the um, trash can, garbage can, size can, and suspend the item on a rack and leave it there for like 30-some days. Now, remember, we have to be concerned about mold growth and things like that, so the book is absolutely dry before I put it in there because if you put a lid, put a book, damp book in a container with a lid, you come back, you're going to see fuzzy, <laughs> fuzzy wuzzy. So, so yeah, so you, you have to make sure the item is perfectly dry. So, um, so I just wanted to say, you know, be ready to handle any little disasters with your documents, because if they're that precious to you, you need to get educated about what should I do if the pipe bursts. Um, people think, I think about the disasters, such as the one that just happened in New Jersey, um, and someone showed their family photographs floating and all, and, I mean, no, that was the one out west. I'm sorry, the flood. Um, photographs, when caught quickly, whether immersed in mud and water, can be um, uh, rescued and, and preserved quickly if you do the right thing. So if you have a photographic collection, just learn the basics by going to those websites that I listed for you um, to be ready to go into action to take care of them. Um, so there's the website address. It's, it's actually at the Library of Congress. Um, the Library of Congress's website is full of information. Anything you want to know. They may even have some techniques on, I don't know, on mending or whatever. But um, I would go there and, and you'll hear a repeat of what I just said and, and educate yourself about what they offer. And here are the suppliers of the um, items that I have on the table. We have um, the resources again, so the Library of Congress, the National Archives, and um, they offer all of this information. And the, um, the conservation, the one that says Conservation US Org, that's where you can find conservators to do work for you. And of course, yeah, they do charge a lot of money, but, but that's what they do. They're mostly based um, for, for high-end conservators. DC is your closest. Yes? Rice to absorb. It could. I get. I had never used rice because we, use, of course, we're using the commercially made things like the silica gel and stuff like that. That's an idea. I don't know. I have to look into that. I would Google search that. Wow. And also, didn't they say? I was going to say, yeah, and the salt shaker. So it should work. Thank you. <laughs> oh, then you have to worry about the pest, though. Oh, I just thought about that. 
I guess I'll stick stick with my synthetic. Yeah, but I can picture maybe if you could put that rice in a in a container and put maybe a screen on top to keep pests from getting inside. That could work. Thank you. Yes. Um. Oh, preservation for text. Yes, yes. They address all disciplines. Yep. That's the um, Library of Congress. And I want to say thank you all so much. And um, if you have further questions, you can reach me here. Call the reference desk, and they'll transfer you to the bindery. Uh, I can't do personal consultancies or anything like that. Um, But if you have, like, a quick question, I will be able to help you. Um, And if you want training, join the volunteer group. (laughs) Um, So... um, did someone else have a question? Did you have a question? Yes. I have uh, some, just a few items. Okay. Now, uh, I'd like to pick your brain up on one particular item first. We have a very important document for me. It's very important. It's from 1930. Um, it showed a photograph of my father because a year before there was something called uh, the crash. 
Uh, what I've done, I've always done, I have uh, baseball card uh, plastic. Those, you know, I put these little cards in. That's why I, uh, I'm taking safeguard family members and a lot of neighbors and friends that may huh. help somebody. Yeah, that's a good I'm idea. Third, um, indicated about something about documents you like to put on the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what I've done. I always take uh, the original, whatever it is, the plumb or whatever. I take it to the office depot and uh, get a copy. You know, if it's colored or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, get it copied like the original color, but in uh, cardstock. Yes. Cardstock. Right. The original goes back into my safety deposit box, stays there, and I put uh, uh, two a copy. One that's good that that's it Exercise, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yes. Um, the first question, uh, the way I, what I started off doing with my book collection, I used Access, the, the Microsoft program Access, to catalog all of my books. And unfortunately, my computer crashed and 
all the information. I didn't do backup, backup like I should have of all of them. I had some backup. So I'm at a start now where I have to start all over again. I mean, that was a long time ago. I got so frustrated. It's just like, that's gone. But I mentioned earlier, earlier, along with organization inventory. So you, there are a lot of options out there nowadays. Like now I know there's a scanning device I can buy to, I don't have to enter each book like I did before. I can just scan it and then enter it into the database. So yes, I would keep an inventory. My method is um, the cheapest route I can go, which is access. Um, And then the second part of your question was, remind me again. (laughs) how to uh, to create those documents oh. for future generations. Yes. Yeah, I um I keep a personal diary and and then I have some journals going on and and um so I and I do the um the specialty books like um children's books uh where you record the babies everything first step and all that. So, yeah, I keep I'm that's, like I said, the keeper of information in my family. So I'm keeping children's information, my own personal information with the diaries that account things that I want to account for. And, um, and then I try to involve family members to help me with the um, keeping of these items. So I don't know if that's answering. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I feel like I'm contributing to the future by being the, the keeper and collector and passing it on. At the same time, you know, passing it on, not just like keeping it and they don't know that I have it. So, yeah. And I think um, we needed to have ended <laughs> between 11.15 and 11.30 because you all have some business to take care of. But I'll have the, artif- um, the objects, the containers and things over there in the corner if you want to come over and talk to me if, um, at the end of this. And I just want to say thank you all so much for coming. I'm going to join your group because the next one, the next session you're having is one that I really need. So I'm going to join your group. But thank you so much for coming. Mm-hmm.